Well, we are in our, um, I think the term, this penultimate uh, message. So the next to the last message in Zephaniah. So next week we will finish up this, this little minor prophet. Uh, but today we are reading in Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 9 through 13. So Zephaniah 3, 9 through 13. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Yep, we're still working on that. Um, that's all right. So when this is the word of the Lord, that's just kind of our cue for thanks be to God, because we are thankful for God's word, that we can have it in our fingertips. We can have it before us. Uh, so it's not something just to be rote or traditional, but to remind us that we do give thanks for the fact that we have God's word in our hands and that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. So let's pray as we look at this word. Father, we do ask that you would fill us this morning. Guide me, strengthen me. May I preach your word faithfully. May you open eyes and ears, unite our hearts to fear your name and to trust in you. Lord, we need to hear every word that comes from your mouth, and not only to hear it, but to take it to heart and listen and obey and let it change us. By the power of your Spirit, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, my, my family might um, roll their eyes at this, um, but in January, I got a smoker. To <laughs> say I got an old brother. I didn't even get an eyes roll. Um, but I enjoy it. I enjoy doing it. I, I know it seems like a bit of the rage now, and and it's become a bit of a hobby that feeds me and my family, hopefully, really good food. And so far, they've not complained about the food that's come off it, so that's good. But I'm, as I've been using it, I've been learning more and more about the intricacies and the nuances of what it means to actually smoke meat. It's not just slab it on there and walk away. There's a lot more to it. Uh, you know, what temperature do you, do you smoke at? The, the length of time and that it's not, you're not actually going for time. You're going for temperature in it. And, uh, you know, maybe the use of butcher paper versus aluminum foil, things along those lines. And how different types of meat smoke differently. It's actually been a bit of a joy to discover. And I've got some teachers, one even in our congregation here, that's been helping me through this. But all these different things, they fall under the big umbrella of just smoking meat, using the smoker. And the amount of stuff I know I have to learn about this one thing that has so many aspects to it actually helped me thinking about this message. And I know that doesn't make any sense at the moment, but it does. And, and really this whole book of Zephaniah, because this, this whole book, the main thing in this book is the day of the Lord. 
And that's what it talks about throughout is the day of the Lord is coming, but it has myriad facets to it. Uh, all these things, as we continue to talk about the day of the Lord, many things that apply to our life and matter in our lives. We may be dealing with the same broad, basic idea from week to week, but the way it affects our lives can be quite varied. So all that to say, as we come to this, perhaps this text sounds similar to what we've already been through, and that may well be the case as you heard it, but the depth of the Word of God is endless. It is living and active, and the nourishment that it brings to our souls is beautiful, and it is much needed. Even if you feel like a lot of what you hear is the same thing you've heard weeks before, it's because we need to hear it over and over again. Now, in our text, there are three instances of the phrase, I will. And those are going to serve to illuminate a truth that is profound. It's a truth that once we grasp it, Truly in our, in our heart and our soul, it will be our hope and our comfort. It's the truth that God is sovereign, that, that He is the Father Almighty. We confessed that earlier in the service, that He is actively at work in the lives of the children of men. And His work is for our glory, or for His glory and our good. But not only is that hope and comfort, but that truth itself Far from being what some accuse, this truth of His sovereignty, far from being what some accuse of of deadening our striving after holiness, it actually enlivens it. I was going through the Canons of Dort with someone this week, and um, it's a document from the 17th century. And the fifth main point of doctrine deals with the perseverance of the saints, of God's people. And in Article 12, it is stated that Far from making, so this this idea that God preserves his people, far from making true believers proud and carnally self-assured, it is rather the true root of humility, of childlike respect, of genuine godliness, of endurance in every conflict, of fervent prayers, of steadfastness in cross-bearing and in confessing the truth, and of well-founded joy in God. You see, knowing that God is in control knowing that He is sovereign doesn't make us do nothing. It actually enlivens our work for Him. It enlivens our joy, that well-founded and enduring joy. You see, what this text and what that idea draws out is that God's work enables us to work. And that truth is encouragement to hope, uh, to perseverance in the day-to-day, to striving after holiness in all things. And in our text, these three I will statements, and the the, the three statements are this, I will change, I will remove, and I will leave. I will change, I will remove, and I will leave. And they serve a similar purpose. They point to the sovereignty of God, and they give us hope in the day-to-day. They give us hope in the hard realities of life. They, They shine a searchlight on the reality that God is at work for the good of those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. So, verse 9, for at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. Now, as we come into this, we have to remember the context. Okay, 3, 1 to 8 that we went through last week was judgment is coming upon Jerusalem. Judgment is coming to Judah. And it sounded, well, bleak. 
uh, really bleak, really dark. And as John Calvin wrote, he said, that judgment might have greatly terrified the godly. Nay, it might have wholly disheartened them had no consolation been, apply, been applied. God then moderates here what he had previously threatened. For if the prophet had only said this, my purpose is to gather all the nations, and thus the whole earth shall be devoured by the fire of indignation. What could the faithful have concluded but that they were to perish with the rest of the world? It was therefore necessary to add something to inspire hope, such as we find here. So these verses are verses of hope. They're a, they're a balance for the godly, for the humble of the city. And so that phrase, at that time, it refers back to verse 8, to the day of, uh, uh, the, the, the day of the Lord and God's call. He's, remember, he said, wait for me. It's God's call to wait for me. And so the text helps answer the question, why? Why, why wait for you? You're about to destroy everything. Why, why should we wait? Why wait in any hope? You know, because considering all that has been laid out against Jerusalem and the people of Judah, there's not really a great deal to be excited about. But what the Lord will do is mind-blowing. Okay, he says that at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. Now, why, why talk about speech? What's, what's the deal with this? Well, certainly the tongue is a restless evil that none can, uh, none can contain it. It represents in many ways impurity and rebellion. No, no one can tame the tongue, but now the tongue is purified. Hearts are changed so that speech is uncorrupted. It's beautiful. There's no harsh word. There's no, there, there's no deceit. There's no lying. There's no gossip. And it is, a, it is a wonderful thing. And, and though I, I think this is really the, the, the main point in some ways here, I can't help but seeing an illusion in this as well. A reversal of sin in a grand way, a, 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 an arc on, on the, the, the a chain, or a, an update in the arc of redemptive history, so to speak. So think back to Genesis 11. What happened in Genesis 11? The, the Tower of Babel right? So at the Tower of Babel, you have a unified people, unified with one language, right? One language. And what do they do? In pride, they, they seek their own glory and not God's. They, they want to build this tower and make a name for themselves. And what does God do? He confuses their language and scatters them throughout, okay? So just remember that. He confuses their language and scatters them throughout the land. But now, the speech of the people will be purified. And it's purified for a different purpose, isn't it? That all of them may call upon the name of the Lord. Not to make a name for themselves, but to call upon God. That's the purpose of our speech, is it not? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. It's to praise Him. It's to call upon Him. To call upon Him, that whole idea of calling upon the Lord, it implies, it requires repentance and confession. It requires an admitting that we need help, that we're, we're hurting, that we're, we're sinful creatures. To call upon the name of the Lord is to cry out with Jonah, as he did from the belly of the great fish, salvation belongs to to the Lord, that central truth in the book of Jonah. It's to get to the point where you realize that all other hopes of salvation are absolutely vain 
and worthless. There is no steadfast love in anything or anyone else. And so they will call upon the name of the Lord, and it says that they will do it with one accord. This is not all in one Honda, but this is all together, okay? One of you got that. Like two people left. Thank you. So this is to do it together. It literally means with one shoulder, like putting your shoulder into it together, bearing the same burden, working together. There's this unity now that the, the, the unity of the people is no longer for rebellion and seeking to make a name for themselves again, but it's unity that calls upon the Lord, that relies upon Him. And so this is the work of the Lord among the peoples of the nations, of the Gentiles, and we see a reversal of what happened at Babel. And it's a beautiful picture of how sin is being dealt with, how God is working in the ark of redemptive history. And then in verse 10, the Lord calls his dispersed people, his dispersed people, you can read in Deuteronomy that he says, I will disperse them if they disobey. And so his people are dispersed throughout the land and from the farthest reaches that they knew to to the rivers of Cush, which most would say that's like the southernmost tip of the Nile, really the farthest land that they knew, God calls them. And it's amazing how we see that truth, this truth that is put here, fulfilled in the life of Christ. So in John 11, John 11, Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead, and the Jewish religious leaders are freaking out. They do not know what to do with him, except for they they know they want to kill him, but they don't know how to do it. And in uh, verse 47, they just basically say, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone is going to believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation, which you you can see there, their motivation. It's not for the people. It's they want their status. And then verse 49, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. What a great way to start. You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And then John comments, he says, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And then listen, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Isn't that beautiful? When you start to see that connection, that that golden thread of salvation woven throughout all of Scripture, here's Zephaniah saying, he'll bring back the dispersed ones. And here it says, Jesus is going to die to bring back his children scattered abroad. If that doesn't start inspiring, man, I can trust this God. I'm not sure what's going to. You know, this is Christ's work gathering the scattered. It's, it's what helped me li- go back overseas after two summers was John 10, 16, where Jesus said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. I have people out there. That they're, they're my children. They may not know it yet, but I'm going to bring them in. I'm going to do that work. So the Lord, the, the Lord is going to work, and thank God He does, because folks, as we look at current reality, our situation, our life, sometimes it seems pretty bleak. We may not hear that same word from a prophet that tells us that the whole, the whole area is going to be destroyed and wiped out and we're going to be taken into exile. But it does seem bleak sometimes. And it changes 
how we view that when we trust that the Lord will change. He will work. Well, then we move to verse 11. And honestly, I find this verse stunning. Okay, that first one was mind-blowing. This one's stunning. I don't know if I have an adjective for the last one. Verse 11, on that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. Now remember, Zephaniah is addressing Jerusalem, the people of God, and the people of God are going to be changed. They shall not be put to shame. God is going to deal with that horrible reality of shame, that accused and burdened and wounded conscience. In Isaiah 54, there's a beautiful portrayal of the work of the Lord. It's, it's that uh, the, the section, Isaiah 50 falls in the section that's, that's really focused on comfort for the people of God, of His work of renewal and restoration. And His people are called to sing and rejoice at the beginning of the cha- that chapter. And then you have in verse 4, fear not, fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. Verse 5, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment, I deserted you. But with great compassion, I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. You will no longer be ashamed. It's it's what Zephaniah is saying, just a little bit longer and a little bit more graphically. Shame is taken away. Now think about shame. That's... It's a feeling of utter rejection. It's a brutal emotion that that often accompanies real guilt. And it deeply influences what we think about and how we view ourselves. It's quite often the thought that because of what we've done, it's not, shame doesn't deal with what we've done, it deals with who we are. And so it starts to say, I'm worthless and no one wants me. You feel utterly rejected and completely and absolutely unworthy of any acceptance. And that can be devastating and brutal in your lives. If you're dealing with and wrestling with shame, hear this. Shame causes you to hide not only from others, but from the presence of the Lord Himself. Think back to Adam and Eve. How are they described before the fall? Naked and unashamed. And then the fall came, and we see in verse, chapter 3, verse 7, they sew fig leaves together to try and cover their, their shame and their sin. And when the Lord was walking in the garden, they hid themselves from Him. When you feel that shame, you hide not only from others, but you hide from the Lord Himself. You seek to retreat from Him. And if you look at the the remnant of God's people in this city, they felt shame. Whether the city 
felt it at all, which the city did not. The, the, the city was shameless. But the remnant felt shame at their own sin, at their own rebellion, as well as they, I, I, I'm sure they felt the, the shame for the sin of their fellow Israelites. Because Jerusalem is being rejected, it's being judged because of rebellion and defilement and oppression, a city that does not listen to the Lord, that does not heed correction, that does not trust in the Lord, that does not draw near to Him. But the Lord removes that shame. The Lord will work to do it. And in our text, it says that He will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. The Lord will take away these accusations of the conscience. He will remove from the city, from, from the community. He will actually remove the proud. The Lord preserve, preserves the faithful, but the, He abundantly repays the proud. You know, those who by their own self-sufficiency ignore God and His ways, the proud He will remove. But it also says he will take away the pride from our own hearts. He'll remove, we will no longer be haughty in his holy mountain, thinking, I'm the lucky one. I'm the chosen one. I'm one of his people. Look at me. No. You see the grace and compassion of the Lord. And not only will this be fully and finally done in the day of the Lord, the day when he returns and sets everything right, but it's already begun in the lives of believers. Hebrews 9, verses 13 to 14, and, and we see how this, this actually, there's been pictures of this throughout the history of God's people. So Hebrews 9, 13, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Purified conscience. Or we could turn to 1 Peter 2.6, for it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. Whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. And that's because He took our shame upon Himself. He took our shame upon Himself. He despised and scorned it at the cross. We will have it removed. Because, folks, the Lord will not merely deal with our objective guilt, purging us of our sins by the cross, but by the cross and the work of the Spirit, He will deal with our conscience and our shame. And He will not just deal with that. He'll put us in a community of the cleansed. He'll put us in a community of the people who in the future are fully and completely cleansed and now in the community of those who the Spirit is working on. Hebrews 12, 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. You hear that language of Zion there, the language of Jerusalem. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. 
one commentator wrote, he said, how great will be that day in which all shame will be removed from the community of God's people. Not only will guilt be eliminated, all the crippling psychological effects of sin shall be wiped away. Each person will attain his full potential in service to God because a guilty conscience will not render him incapable of functioning freely in service to God. How often do you now sometimes feel like, ah, oh, I can't do that. I'm not good enough to do that. I'm not good enough to help out. And guilt or shame keeps you from serving. Go to the Lord. Those who believe in Him will not be put to shame. This is the work of God, and it is, it is there for us to delight in and to free us from that guilt and shame. It's to raise our hopes and change how we live today, how we serve and love, and how we view each day, because the shame has been taken us away. It frees us to pursue, and it frees us to repent, because as we come to Him, He's not going to shame us. He's going to remove that shame from us. Well, then there's still more. Verse 12, but I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid." Here is the Lord promising the remnant, promising the faithful, those, those humble and lowly, those who seek the Lord, that He will preserve them. It's, again, it's not, the humble and, or it's not the proud and exultant that are preserved, but it's the humble. They are the ones who seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Psalm 2.12, blessed are all who take refuge in Him. These are those who have learned the lesson of Psalm 118, verses 8 and 9. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. These are those who know that there's no ground of glorying or of relying on anything or anyone else for salvation or for hope or for life in and itself. They're, they're those who are poor in spirit, as Jesus describes. And what's going to happen with them? What's going to happen? He'll leave in the midst of people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice, speak no lies, nor shall they be, there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. They're going to be conformed fully on that day and in process throughout more and more to the image of God. It's going to be increasingly true in our lives as believers. We see in 2 Corinthians 3, 18, I think it says that we all with unveiled faces beholding the, the glory of the Lord are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. As we behold the Lord and His glory, He's transforming us more and more to be like Him. The people will do no injustice. Can you imagine a life like that? I just looked at the news this morning. I think out of like eight of the top news items were mass or, or uh, large shootings in major cities in our country. 
12 killed here, 8 killed here, 9 killed here, or trafficking. Sad that that's the first thing on the news, but it's reality is there is injustice. It's going to be removed. It will be no more, and the people of God will do no injustice. They will not speak lies, and there will be an absence of the deceitful tongue. No lies. You don't have to ask, are you, really, are you telling me the truth? You're serious about that? Because there's, there's no lies, no deceitful tongue. The problems that are laid out against Jerusalem in, in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 3, they're gone. They're removed. The people are conformed to the image of God. They will fulfill the ultimate call because of God's work to be holy as I am holy. We're told to pursue that. Be ye holy as I am holy. And then there's this very last line that we look at this morning. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. So we've seen in the first few verses of our text a reversal of Babel, right? The people are no longer scattered. They're brought back. What is this? It's a return to Eden. It's a return to paradise. It's a return to, to lying down, and, and there's no fear. There's no fear that the lion is going to eat you, that the, the bear is going to maul you. There's no fear. You, you lie down in safety. Commentator said, the idyllic situation in vision describes the arrival of the theocracy, the covenantal core of, I shall be your God and you shall be my people, becomes a perfected reality in the experience of the restored remnant. They shall be his people doing his will, and he shall be their God, shepherding them in a restored paradise. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul, and he does that now, and he will do that fully and completely at the day of the Lord. So this is what the Lord is going to do. Just consider these things. He unites us. He takes away our shame. He purifies us. He removes the proud and the exultant. But the question is, so what now? How does this help me right now? How does this facet of the day of the Lord do anything for us here today? Well, first thing it does is it shows us more and more of who God is. It shows us that God is the one to work for his people. He is the covenantal God fulfilling the covenant. He is faithful. He is great in his steadfast love. Whether we are faithful or not, he is faithful to his covenant. So thinking about how this brings comfort and encouragement and hope in our lives today, well, that big picture puts our present circumstances in the proper perspective. It gives us hope that allows us not to be overwhelmed or controlled by the mess that is going on, whether out in the world that we see or that we feel in our own lives. It gives us perspective. We live in disheartening and sad times. We live in shameful times. Our own lives oftentimes are shameful. 
we do guilty things. And it's frustrating. Yet when we grasp the sovereignty of God, I think it gives us hope to persevere, to press on. Because there's, there's no quit in God. And that, that truth is, is wind in our sails as we go through this life. As we go through the storms and the smooth seas, we have hope in Him and in His promises. Because when we realize that the victory has already truly been won, it's been won by Jesus, that at the cross, the power of sin and death and hell has been defeated, that on the last and the great day of the Lord, it will be fully removed, that has to affect us. It frees us. It frees us from the shackles of shame and guilt. It frees us from the shackles of worry and anxiety. Folks, we are often fearful and anxious people and not much different than the rest of the world. But understanding this leads us to call upon the name of the Lord. It leads us to seek refuge in Him, to draw near to Him, to trust Him, to listen to Him, to heed His correction. He is worthy and He is powerful. And so, let us look in this day with great anticipation to the return of the Lord, to, to come, Lord Jesus, come. Our hope is in that. Our, our hope is in the I will of God. Because He will do it. And so, we can work and wait. And you know what? We have more of a picture than the readers of Zephaniah had. A lot more. We see the fulfillment starting in Christ. And then we have that promise in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem. Not this Jerusalem that's been judgment cast against it, but the new, renewed, restored Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. His, his great covenantal promise is fulfilled. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. So come, Lord Jesus, come. And until that time, may we rest in the truth of the I will and be those who work and wait for Him in each and every day. Let's pray. Father, we do give You thanks and praise and ask that You would work in our lives. Give us hope. Strengthen us by this word, by the truth that you are good and sovereign, our King, eternal, immortal, and that you are worthy. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.